This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 50, The Fall of the Western Roman Empire. When Constantine established the capital of the entire Roman Empire at Byzantium, renaming it Constantinople in his own honour, the days of Rome's glory as the centre of the mighty Roman Empire were in the past. The centre of gravity had shifted eastwards to a position where the major threats to the Roman Empire could be better dealt with. During the years of the Tetrarchy, the main Augustus of the Roman Empire, whether it be Diocletian or Galerius, ruled from the east, leaving Rome as the antiquated old centre of the empire. 300 years earlier, Augustus and Agrippa were building a modern city that was the envy of the world. Now it was full of historical baggage and unattractive. Even the imperial city of the Roman Empire in the west had been moved to Mediolanum, modern Milan by this time. This only left the Senate in Rome and the Senate was not comparatively important anymore in any case. However, you still had to be very brave to take on the Roman Empire at this stage with its highly effective military and its organised constitution. It was an empire with a lot of resource and it was an altering empire at the time of Constantine's death in 337. The next chapter of this story is about Constantine's sons, of which he had four. One of the sons was already mentioned in episode 48. That was Crispus, who played an important role in assisting his father to become the sole emperor of the Roman Empire by helping him to defeat Licinius in 324. However, just two years later, Constantine had his own wife Fausta and his son Crispus executed in very mysterious circumstances. Some historians suggest an affair may have taken place between Crispus and his stepmother, but it is unknown for sure. Whatever happened, we know that he had three sons left alive on his death and the empire would be shared by those three sons. The eldest son was also called Constantine and so we will call him Constantine II. Constantine would be granted rule of the Gallic prefecture which contained Britannia, Gaul, Hispania and the lands of today's southern France, which is often referred to as Vienne. Constantius, who we called Constantius II to distinguish him from his grandfather Constantius Chlorus, would be granted rule of the eastern prefecture, which covered the lands of Thrace, Asia Minor, the Levant 
and Egypt. Finally, the youngest son, Constans, would gain control of the Italian prefecture, which included Italy, North Africa, Illyricum and the Balkan Peninsula, as well as all the other major Mediterranean islands bar Cyprus, which belonged to the east. This arrangement was not the specific wish of Constantine the Great, but it was the result of an agreement between the three brothers who massacred those other members of their family who specifically potentially qualified to be Caesars of parts of the empire. Constantine II was the eldest of the three and tended to lord it a bit over the youngest sibling, Constans, who would have likely only have been a teenager at this time. Constantine would try to demand more land from Constans's territories and although Constans tried to negotiate to keep the peace, Constantine would not let up and eventually tried to march on Rome. Fortunately for Constans, he was ahead of this action and although he was not in Italy at the time, he sent an army over who defeated and killed Constantine, leaving Constans to take his lands. The subject of Christianity became an issue again as Constans and Constantius II attempted to appease the bishops of their respective lands. The Nicene Creed of 325, which had previously attempted to dictate the true terms of Christianity, supported the notion that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was coexistent with God as the Eternal Father and Son, and essentially a single entity. This is the homoousian Christian attitude from which Trinitarianism and Catholicism stem from. The counter-argument was from the Arianist Christians, who believed that Jesus was the Son of God, but was not the same as God. Despite the Nicene Creed supporting the homoousian position, the Arians were obviously not very happy about it. Constans supported the Nicene Creed, and Constantius II did not wholly support the Arians but also had issue with the Nicene Creed and so further confusion regarding the very nature of Christianity ensued. The religion of the empire in general was quite contestable at this stage. Traditionalist Roman pagans, Hellenists from the Greek lands, Jews and Christians of Arian and non-Arian backgrounds just to reference the main divisions only. As heroic as it was for Constans to stand up against his older brother and defeat him for the right to rule the western provinces, another man called Magnus Magnentius, who was a military commander, challenged the rule of Constans, and Magnentius's forces would trap him and assassinate him, allowing Magnentius to become the new usurper of the west. The last remaining son of Constantine the Great, Constantius II, would march across to the town of Mercer in Pannonia and do battle with Magnentius and defeat him, pushing him back to Gaul. Two years later, in 353, the two would do battle again at Monseleucus in the south of the modern country of France, and Constantius would be victorious again. This time Magnentius took his own life. 
Constantius II would rule until his own death in 361, and he would make no mystery of his support of Arian Christianity. Constantius would actually place bans on pagan traditions, such as sacrifices and closed Roman temples. A cousin of Constantius and another grandson of Constantius Chlorus was called Julian, and his troops would declare him as an Augustus while Constantius was still the emperor. Julian recognised that many of the population still wanted to observe the traditional Roman pagan traditions, and so his rule would have appealed to those members of the population. Constantius died of a fever, and Julian would take this opportunity to reject Christianity. Julian would show an aggressive attitude towards the Sasanians in the east, but he surely overreached himself because he died of battle wounds in 363, with his supply lines stretched. He was succeeded by Jovian, who was a Christian. So Julian was the final non-Christian emperor, and so his historical epithet given to him by Christians gives us the name Julian the Apostate. Barbarians The term barbarian was a Roman term to describe the foreign tribes who lived along and beyond the empire's borders, such as the Goths, for example. So barbarian is a very general term. The Picts of Caledonia and the Berbers of Africa would have also been regarded as barbarian tribes. The Franks from the northern lands of modern Germany were pushing into the Gallic lands of the modern countries of Belgium and the northeast of France across the Rhine River during the 350s. Emperor Julian played an important part in holding them at bay. Rule of the empire after the short reign of Jovian separated into designated provinces split between multiple emperors once again. Valentinian the Great succeeded Jovian and made his brother called Valens the emperor of the eastern provinces. This would have been somewhat necessary because it was during the 360s and 370s that the empire was facing barbarian issues on a number of fronts. The Franks and the Alemanni were making a nuisance of themselves along the northern frontiers. The Saxons, from the same area of Germany as the Franks, were crossing the North Sea invading the lands of Britannia. And this situation was not helped by the Picts of Northern Britannia and their Celtic cousins, the Scots, invading the northern land border. A further problem was being caused by the Goths, but they may not have chosen to put pressure on the Roman frontiers had they not watched their own lands being taken from the east by nomadic tribes originating from the Eurasian steppe called the Huns. Valens was not interested in entertaining the Goths who were being squeezed into a small area of land and taking liberties with Roman allowances, so Valens would take forces to do battle with them in 378. The Goths would be supported by Scythians who had been pushed into Gothic lands from the Eurasian steppe as a result of the migrational pressures being caused 
by the expanding Huns. So these Scythians, specifically called the Alans, joined forces with the Goths against the Romans. The result was the Battle of Adrianople, which has great historical significance. We will cover this battle in a dedicated episode, and we will also talk more of the Goths, the Scythians and the Huns later in this volume. Emperor Valens and his army were dealt a crushing defeat at the Battle of Adrianople. Valens himself went missing at this battle, never to be seen again. We assume that he was killed. The aftermath of the battle saw significant settlement of Roman lands by the Goths around the Danube River. They took control of key strategic locations and slaughtered a significant amount of Roman military. This has been labelled as the worst imperial Roman defeat since the Battle of Edessa, which we mentioned in episode 47 as the one where the Emperor Valerian was taken as a prisoner of war during the crisis of the 3rd century. It may have been the worst physical defeat of the Romans since the Battle of Cannae, when Hannibal Barca of the Carthaginians inflicted the deadliest day in history of Europe on the Romans some 600 years earlier during the Punic Wars, and a battle that we covered in episode 29. The Goths, who settled within the Roman Empire, were coerced into becoming allies to the Romans, but this arrangement would create a weak bond which only existed while the Romans could rebuild their army. Those Goths who settled the Roman lands are distinguished as the Visigoths. The Roman emperor who was entrusted with the task of rebuilding the empire was Theodosius, a devout Christian from Hispania. It was he who instigated the Edict of Thessalonica with his co-rulers in the year 380, which dictated that Nicene Christianity, that doctrine of Christianity agreed by the Romans in 325, should be the official religion of the empire, and that all traditional Roman paganism and unorthodox versions of Christianity, such as Arianism, be branded as heresy. This would be supported by his co-ruler in the West called Gratian, who exercised the word of this edict. Temples and practices that were not in line with the orthodox Nicene Creed of Christianity would be destroyed and banned. While Theodosius continued to rule in the East, there was a sequence of quicker periods of rule in the West where the Emperor died or the throne was usurped. In 392, the throne of the Western Roman Empire was usurped by a man called Eugenius, who was an advocate of traditional Roman religion and a close ally of the Frankish-born Roman army officer called Arbogast, who didn't feel that he himself would be accepted as the emperor due to his Germanic origins. Theodosius did not trust Eugenius and Arbogast and met them on the battlefield supported by the Visigoths, at the Battle of the Frigidus in 394. Theodosius was victorious with Arbogast committing suicide and Eugenius was executed, bringing to an end the last hopes that paganism in the Roman Empire would be tolerated. Theodosius would become the sole emperor of the empire, 
but he died at the beginning of the following year. His sons would split the empire into two once again, but this time the Roman Empire as we know it would never be ruled by a sole emperor ever again. Theodosius's two sons were young and so their respective reigns were dominated by others. Honorius was just 10 years old when his father died and left him in charge of the Western Empire. It would be the military general Stilicho who would effectively act as his regent. Stilicho played a major role in Theodosius's victory at the Battle of the Frigidus which had further crippled Roman military resources. Stilicho was also half Vandal, being the son of a Vandal military officer. The Vandals were yet another group of Germanic peoples who had been allowed to occupy areas of Pannonia for a number of generations before this point in the story, and there is no real evidence of a history of tension between the Vandals and the Romans, although they would have still been very much considered as a barbarian race. Stilicho's story is an interesting one, as he took responsibility for dealing with all the problems of the migration period caused in large part by the Huns. Many tribes, including those of Vandal origin, were being forced westwards by the invading Huns and they were being forced into the lands of Gaul. There were also problems with the Visigoths as well at this stage, with the Visigoths highly frustrated at the fact that they militarily supported the Romans at great loss to themselves, and this was not acknowledged or rewarded by the Romans, so the Visigothic king Alaric decided to raid lands within the Roman Empire. So Stilicho campaigned against Alaric, but was prevented from finishing him off by the Eastern Empire, who feared the loss of more troops and didn't feel that it was worth the extra sacrifice. Stilicho would have been very upset by this as he felt he had a chance to eliminate a Roman threat, but the Western Empire could have done with that more than the Eastern Empire cared about. Another issue that came up between the two halves of the Roman Empire was when the Berber Roman military general Gildo revolted. This was a big deal for the Western Empire as we know that the possession of African lands was essential for feeding the Roman population due to its grain output. The Eastern Empire once again showed very little concern for the plight of the Western Empire. The Eastern Empire had Egypt that they could gather food resource from, so the Western Empire now relied heavily on Africa and Mauritania. At the same time, the Picts were causing more problems on the northern fringes of Roman territory in Britannia. Governing the Western Empire was a thankless task now, with so many invasions and revolutions and little assistance from the Eastern Empire who preferred to protect themselves. By very late in the first decade of the 400s, the Western Empire was in complete turmoil. With the Visigoths now across the Danube, the Vandals and the Alans had to cross the Rhine into Gaul alongside other Germanic tribes who had been displaced by the Huns, and they were called the Suvians. The Roman armies in Britannia had decided to declare their own emperor, 
So if foreign invasions were not enough to deal with, there were now civil uprisings too. The Visigoths under Alaric were still attempting to push into the Italian peninsula. Stilicho's work was quite simply impossible. There was no way to deal with this situation. The Vandals, Alans and Swabians pushed southwards and settled the lands of the Iberian Peninsula, effectively stealing this land away from the Roman Empire. The Romans retained the northeast quarter only. This was despite the locally declared emperor in Britannia who ruled as Constantine III crossing into Gaul and attempting to do battle with these barbarians. Stilicho was removed from power and executed for his failings by the now mature Honorius, who was the true emperor anyway. Constantine III would do battle with the forces of Honorius, who eventually had to concede to co-ruling the Western Empire alongside him. However, Constantine's departure from Britannia was seen more as an abandonment by those residing there, and so the people of Britannia had to fend for themselves without Roman support. The Sacking of Rome With so much going on on so many fronts involving so many tribes and armies, it is very hard to describe all of the events going on. In summary, the Western Empire was losing territory to barbarians along most of its frontiers. It was in the year 408 that Alaric, an ally of the Romans but certainly no friend, requested of Rome that his Visigoths be granted more money and more land. Rome refused and so Alaric decided to make them pay. Alaric may have felt that he could have negotiated with Stilicho but now he was dead he would have to deal with Honorius himself. Honorius simply frustrated Alaric and so Alaric chose to besiege Rome on three occasions with the third occasion seeing the Visigoths entering the city through the gates and sacking it. The pillaging took three days so this was three days of terror for all of the residents regardless of their social standing, slave and master alike. Rome was no longer the western capital, so Honorius was not there. Instead, he was in the newest capital city of Ravenna. The sacking of Rome sent shockwaves throughout the entire Roman world though, as this was still a significantly symbolic city, and a city that had not been sacked in this manner for 800 years. Before Alaric could make any further significant action in the empire, he died of an illness. The Visigoths would eventually resettle later in the 410s in Gaul along the Garonne River and the area around this would become a new Visigothic kingdom within the Western Roman Empire. Honorius eventually died in the year 423 and by that time things had become a bit more peaceful but the Western Empire had lost a significant amount of land during Honorius' reign. Britannia was now lost, as well as the southern and western Iberian Peninsula. 
the Visigoths had gained some autonomy of their new kingdom in southern Gaul, and another Germanic tribe called the Burgundians had acquired a significant portion of land along the eastern fringes of the modern country of France. All of this was lost land, and that also meant lost tax money. The Final Decline Before the Visigoths were given their kingdom in the southern lands of modern France, they had been campaigning against the barbarian tribes who had crossed the Rhine and migrated into Hispania. If you remember, these were the Swabians in the northwest, the Alans in the southwest, and the Vandals in the far south. The Alans had agreed to merge with the Vandals in the south to create an amalgamated crown. If what had happened so far within the Western Empire hadn't been enough to bring the entire Western Empire to its knees, then what happened next might. In the year 429, the new Vandal Collective, which now included the Alans, crossed over the Strait of Gibraltar into North Africa. Their motivation for doing this is questionable since we all know there was value that the North African provinces had to Rome itself thanks to the rich grain production there. If we are to believe what we read, then it is suggested that the Roman governor in North Africa called Bonifacius invited the Vandals to help him deal with a civil dispute. Why any Roman would turn to the Vandals is a bit of a quiz, but whatever the circumstances, the Vandals crossed into North Africa and started to occupy the lands of Mauritania. The Romans had no answer for this bold move, and the new Western Emperor, Valentinian III, made a treaty with the King of the Vandals, called Geyseric, to allow the Vandals to settle in North Africa. Geyseric decided that he wanted all of the wealth of North Africa and ignored the treaty by invading the province of Africa with its capital at Carthage, which was a new Roman city built at the site of the destroyed capital city of the Carthaginian Empire from the previous millennium. Geyseric took this city and it was now the capital city of a new Vandal kingdom in North Africa. Rome would be denied the grain supply of North Africa and would have to strike up a trade deal with the Vandals to get their share. The Vandals even took control of the island of Sicily. The Huns by this time had expanded into all of the lands north of the Danube and the Rhine apart from the area in a pocket in the northwest of mainland Europe dominated by the Franks. The Hunnic Empire was a rival now in size to both the Western and Eastern Roman Empires. The prominent Roman general called Flavius Etius had maintained a decent political relationship with the Huns. Etius had spent time as a political prisoner at the courts of both the Visigoths and the Huns at a young age and this probably gave him some strong military and diplomatic knowledge that would keep the weak Western Roman Emperor Valentinian III in a stronger position.
It was in 434 that the Hunnic Empire would see a new king take their throne, and he turned out to be a very decisive and aggressive ruler, and his name was Attila. Attila had a personal agenda that involved conquer and assimilation, and he was willing to be quite ruthless about it. This would mean trouble for both the Eastern Empire and the Western Empire. As if the Western Empire didn't already have enough to deal with. If Attila had his way, then he would have taken both the cities of Constantinople and Rome. By the year 451, Attila had decided that he wanted lands in Roman Gaul, and so he decided to cross the Rhine with a large army. His strategy was to raid the cities and plunder the countryside. He didn't waste too much time with destroying and occupying the cities though, as this didn't seem to be his priority. Etius had to take action to prevent Attila from taking Gallic land away from the Romans, and he would be supported by the Visigoths, who would have also been concerned about Hunnic proximity to their kingdom. The result was the Battle of the Catalaunian Plains in the northeast of modern France between the Romans led by Etius and the Huns led by Attila. This ferocious battle ended in a bit of a stalemate which was good for the defending Romans as it had prevented Attila's further advances. Attila would die just two years later and it was as if the wind had been taken out of the sails of the Huns and their imperial reach rapidly diminished away from the Roman imperial borders. The Romans would have little time to celebrate though. Even if circumstances had prevented Attila and the Huns from marching on Rome, trouble started coming from the opposite direction. This time it would be the troublesome King Geyseric of the Vandals who was answering a call from the widow of the recently deceased Emperor Valentinian III. Her name was Licinia Eudoxia and she was concerned that a man called Petronius Maximus was trying to muscle in on the vacant throne. Geyseric was only too happy to answer the call. The Vandals spent two weeks sacking the city of Rome during 455, including the stripping of gilt bronze roof tolls from the temple of Jupiter Optimus Maximus. This act of desecration is a possible explanation as to how the ancient tribe name Vandal became a word to describe someone who damages property. The power of Rome's neighbours such as the Visigoths, the Vandals, the Burgundians and the Franks measured up to the Romans now and the Western Roman Empire was now just one of a series of Western Mediterranean kingdoms who chopped and changed their allegiances according to the mood of the day. Western Roman leaders were now unimportant, insignificant and ineffective as the rulers of neighbouring barbarian kingdoms showed more drive, ambition and freedom to make decisions. By the year 474 the Western Roman Empire was restricted to just the Italian peninsula 
with the alpine lands to its direct north, a comparatively small coastal strip of land at Dalmatia on the opposite side of the Adriatic Sea, and a column of territory running from the south coast of modern France to the middle of the northern coast of modern France. Gone were Britannia and Hispania, and the islands of Sicily, Sardinia and Corsica. The Gallic Romans were being squeezed from the southwest by the Visigoths and from the northeast by the Franks. Julius Nepos, the governor of Dalmatia, became the Western Roman Emperor in this year and he appointed a Roman military commander called Orestes to become the new master of soldiers, which was a high-ranking military role in the empire. However, the following year, Orestes took control of the Western Empire capital city of Ravenna and Julius Nepo relinquished his rule and fled back to Dalmatia. Orestes would then declare that his very own 15-year-old son was the new emperor and his name was Romulus Augustus. In order to take control of the Western Empire, Orestes had made promises to the barbarian mercenaries who made up his military and promised them land in return. Once Orestes had been successful, he did not keep his promise to the barbarians and so they revolted under their own leader, Odoacha. Orestes fled to the city of Pavia and Odoacha followed him. They would do battle in the year 476 at the Battle of Pavia. We don't know a great deal about this battle, only that Odoacha, the barbarian, defeated and killed Orestes and then marched on the capital city where he would depose the young emperor Romulus Augustus and become the ruler of the Italian peninsula as its king. By this time the Visigoths and the Burgundians had squeezed the Romans out of southern Gaul, effectively cutting off their northern Gallic lands from Italy. With Italy now under foreign rule, the Western Roman Empire could now be considered as gone, and we consider the lands governed by Adoacha as a new Italian kingdom. The lands of northern Gaul, occupied by the Romans, is known to history as the Kingdom of Soissons and could be considered Roman until it was consumed by the Franks in 486. The Roman governor of Dalmatia, Julius Nepos, returned to Dalmatia after his defeat by Orestes and continued to rule as the Roman governor until his own death in 480. In fact, Julius Nepos was assassinated and Odoacha would invade on the pretext that Julius Nepos's murderers should be brought to justice. The significant outcome of this was that Dalmatia was actually taken by Odoacha and became a part of the Kingdom of Italy. So this is the final scraps of the Western Empire being cleared up after many hundreds of years of existence. Of course, we will find out what happened to the Eastern Roman Empire and the new kingdoms of Europe, such as those of the Visigoths, the Franks and the Italian kingdom of Odoacha in a future episode. But this year, 476 is thought to be the traditional end of the Western Roman Empire and it marks the final time 
when Rome was Roman. Well, there you go. And uh, I'm sorry to be mainstream on you, but yeah, I do believe that that is a, a good time to say that the Roman Empire disappeared in 476. Of course, the Eastern Empire kept going and there were little pockets of, uh, of Roman um, of Roman entities that carried on for a very short time afterwards. But certainly the story of the Roman Empire is probably regarded as the story of Rome. And that's where we started. We started talking about the city of Rome and really when the, the rule of Rome uh, come under a, a foreign ruler, then we can possibly say that we're now moving into the medieval times and that classical Rome and the Roman Empire was now a thing of the past. OK, uh, last week I mentioned the fact that uh, one of our uh, patrons, one of the members of the History of the World podcast Illuminati uh, called Lynn Dowling um, had um, asked a question of the podcast, which she's entitled to do because she's qualified for that. Uh, for that pleasure and uh, let's see what she has asked so she's put hi Chris I've been thinking a lot about my question it's the first one that came to mind but then I thought no maybe there's a better one after a lot of time I finally decided to go with my first choice here it is and I hope it doesn't prove to be controversial uh, I do not intend it to be there seems to be a lot of myth and or misgivings about the existence of matrilineal societies in the ancient world. What is your take on whether the, any of these societies existed and or prospered for any time? And if they did, what happened to them? I truly love listening to the podcast, but it's obvious that the history of the world is largely a history about men. As you point out, evolution was and never will be perfect and had to make some compromises along the way, e.g. a female pelvic size that facilitated mobility but not easy childbirth. Perhaps the survival of the species, at least until the present age, depended on women uh, attending to the business of procreation and nurturing and not so much on conquering other lands and people. Still, could there have been simply no societies throughout the whole sweep of history that were not patrilineal? Cheers. Lynn in San Diego. What a fascinating question, um, indeed. Um, and um, disappointingly, I, I don't really know the answer to this. And I, I'm, I'm just, um, I'll just clarify um, what I understand by this question. So, um, we there's there's sort of two words that that come into play here. There's patrilineal, uh, patrilineal, and patriarchal. Um, if we're talking about patrilineal societies, that's where the uh, you know where uh, titles and um, and possessions and, and that kind of thing are, are passed down through the male line, and, and and we get and there are plenty of examples of matrilineal societies where um, you know the female would be passing down her uh, you know her honours to the to the children and that kind of thing. If we're talking about um, patriarchal and matriarchal societies, then that's, I think that's what we're alluding to with this question. So like patriarchy is something that is common. Uh, matriarchy is something that is, um, that is debated, um, and especially ancient societies as well, very interesting. So what I'll try and do, I'll, I'll try and sort of 
attack this from different angles because there's no clear answer. So I'm going to try and uh, address this in, in particular ways and, and probably entice some food for thought, hopefully, with, uh, with, the, with you, my, my lovely listening public. Now, any subject like this is always going to be controversial, and, and I do like controversial subjects. Um, you know, I think people can be too sensitive when you talk about this, when um, people are often discussing things, that, and, and they're just putting across a point of view that seems quite natural, but it, it can come across very offensive. Um, it's never meant in that manner, so I think we always have to sometimes take a step back and say, look, is this person actually trying to offend me, or are they trying to make a point that they believe in. And um, this is sort of my take on the Neolithic. The Neolithic revolution was something that had to have been caused by pressures on the world that we live in because it was a very sudden and radical change in how we lived. And, and I don't want to go into full details because I've made so many podcast episodes about it. I don't really want to go deeply into it again. But um, when we entered into the Neolithic, we very quickly became sedentary. We very, very quickly started domesticating animals and plants. And then we very quickly started, um, uh, you know, creating villages and, and, and urban settlements, which over time um, become larger and larger. And, and part of this was um, through competition. Now, with competition, you get conflict. And with conflict, you it comes down to a survival of the fittest and it seems that it was very quickly realized that men uh have more potentially and i can be corrected by anyone i'm happy to always be corrected but men tend to have uh, as nature um as nature creates men uh, more physical ability like more physical strength and they have more physical aggression, okay? So I, I think that that is a nature of men, is their aggressiveness and their bodily strength is higher than that of uh, human females. Human females, of course, produce young, and that is vital for a growing society, that, that procreation is done at a quick rate. So much of a woman's uh, mature life, her peak years, her peak physical years, must have been um, invested in the creation and the nurturing of very young children. So essentially what I'm saying is it was a natural progression for societies to become more patriarchal because it was the influence of men uh, that... Um, had a greater impact on competing human societies. Um, and um, I think it was just a natural progression. Now then, while I'm looking for clues about this, so I obviously go to Wikipedia. Of course, of course we go to Wikipedia. Really. It's incredibly reliable and informative, Wikipedia. Uh, and it says, um, in relation to matriarchy, it says, most anthropologists hold that there are no known societies that are unambiguously matriarchal. I love that statement, that are, that are unambiguously matriarchal. So I think with that statement, we are admitting that there is a possibility of matriarchy. And um, so 
I think um, I think maybe in the past it might have it might have suited uh, certain men to deny uh, that matriarchy was possible. So there would have been maybe a hidden agenda behind saying something like that. I'm sure you all know what I'm trying to suggest. Uh, however, um, in my opinion, matriarchy uh, is it has to be a possibility. And the reason why is because of what I've just described as the triggers for patriarchy. So I've said that it's indeed competition uh, for resource is uh, something that um, something that describes the Neolithic well and that inevitability of patriarchy, which uh, some people have described it as an inevitability. But I believe it is only an inevitability in certain uh, scenarios such as the typical Neolithic of maybe Mesopotamia, let's say, for example. Um, if we don't have competing societies, then the female takes on a much more important role because the, the, the tribe, the tribe that you belong to, certainly cannot be sustained if not for the female. So now suddenly the female almost come, becomes very spiritual in essence. And so in terms of, um, and, and we can sort of potentially see this in the animal kingdom, like you sort of see, um, you know, animals as of a certain species can be very matriarchal in the way that it's the females who lead the herd and that kind of thing. And, and, the, and the, the strong males are just, outposted to the fringes of the territory let's say just to defend the territory so they're not actually dictating what goes on in the society and i can believe that that would exist in certain human circumstances as well so um although it's um you know it's clear that there's no uh you know absolute clear examples of matriarchy in human history I doesn't, I for me, that doesn't mean that it's not possible. I do believe it is absolutely possible and there could be an example found of it one day um, that would support um, the view that matriarchy is possible in human society, absolutely. And I also think this connects extremely well to that, um, to that um, story that we told about the Amazons, you know, maybe a couple of weeks ago, I think I answered um, another another listener's question about the Amazons and uh, how Herodotus describes these, uh, you know, potentially Scythian um, ancestors of uh, a more sort of contemporary society, like the Sarmatians, uh, where the, they, uh, they descended from the Amazons, a, a warrior woman race. Um, and uh, so there we're almost saying that Herodotus tells us that they categorically did exist and they existed in the Amazons, these warrior women. But I think it's one of those subjects for, for that anyone can explore and then, and then gather their own opinion about. So I, I don't think I can help anyone understand if it, if it was true or not. I certainly believe that it was possible and, 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 and I believe that it is um, probably likely that there were matriarchal societies where women were the decision makers as to what happened um, on a day by day basis to their tribe. 
And uh, also, I think the importance of women is very much, um, you know, evident in certain societies. Like, um, for example, I think we were talking about the Yangshao Society during Volume 2, the Yangshao Society of China. It was very matrilineal. And so could that possibly mean it was in any way matriarchal as well? But it's a very interesting question. I'm, I'm glad I got the opportunity to talk about it, um, even if it, my answer is extremely ambiguous, I'm afraid. I wish I could be a bit more categorical with it. I could only really give an opinion because there are no firm examples of, of ancient societies that were matriarchal, uh, not that I could discover, let's, let's put it that way. And um, certainly I think there were probably uh, many men in the modern world who, who believe that matriarchy actually exists uh, within the four walls of their uh, of their house, of their own home. So um, I, I'm sure you'd find a lot of men there that would admit to the existence of matriarchy uh, in their own lives. So, uh, But an uh, incredible question. Thank you so much. And um, I, I'm very, very interested. If anyone's listening to this that does have an opinion or, or thought or, or anything that they want to share on this subject, Please, please, please write in, and we can uh, we can go to the discussion forums as well. So, but um, that question was um, thanks to Lynn Dowling, who um, is a History of the World podcast Illuminati member, and uh, as such uh, was awarded the right to ask that question. Now, if you'd like to uh, earn the right to ask a question that will be answered during a podcast episode, then all you need to do is sign up. Uh, to become a member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati, you can make a donation of as little as $1 a month through the Patreon website. And uh, in that case, you uh, become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. As have uh, uh, Harleen Loy and Lauren uh, Talver, who have both um, become members of the History of the World podcast Illuminati this week. So... Thank you so much and uh, welcome along. Now, I'm going to wrap up this week because it's been a long episode and um, I'm sure there's lots of messages that need to be read out and and I will, of course, get round to them, but just not this week, just because I'm conscious that the episode is now uh, getting quite long. So I like to try and keep them all at an average length to... Uh, for your convenience more than anything so that you're not so well like if it, if it comes up and it's an episode that's an hour and a quarter long then that will put that might ruin your little slot for listening to it so let's uh, let's try and keep it sensible so next week we'll go over some of your messages and reviews and and uh, give them the time that they deserve uh, next week it will be the uh, the first summary episode of ancient Rome because we've sort of reached the end of the story of ancient Rome now so as usual, we go over, we summarise it, and we pay, uh, we paper over any cracks, uh, any parts of the story that we feel we might have missed that w- will be worth mentioning. So we won't just be treading over old ground, but we'll also be digging for new material that we can uh, actually bring to the forefront of the podcast episode itself. So uh, I'm not sure, it may be one or two episodes, probably two, knowing uh, the way things go. So it's always hard to cram in a thousand years of history into uh, one 30-minute slot, so I should imagine two episodes. Now, of course, this is the last podcast before Christmas, so 
Uh, I have to, of course, wish you all a Merry Christmas. And, um, you know, for those of you who might be um, a bit concerned about Christmas this year because you may be denied the pleasure of being able to spend it with your families as you would normally be able to spend it, I certainly won't be able to do that. I'm in a, an area of England which has been dramatically affected by uh, coronavirus. So, um, unfortunately, uh, it's um, ruined my Christmas celebration. So... I'm sure um, a lot of you will have been affected in a similar way. So, um, don't, you know, stay strong, enjoy your Christmas as well as you can and uh, realise that, we, you know, we're all doing it so that we can uh, enjoy time together, not just at Christmas, but any time together. We're just all doing it to protect each other and I think it's essential now and you should, if you're able to get through Christmas um, in a very... Um, humble manner uh, this year and a very low key manner then you should be very very proud of yourself so um, I'd like to wish you all the uh, the most loveliest of Christmases um, that you can possibly have at a time like this and, uh, and I hope um, none of you are feeling too miserable uh, anyway I will be back um, obviously next week it will be Boxing Day so that will be our next episode it will be the last episode of the year 2020 and um, until then have a smashing week have a wonderful Christmas and don't forget uh, if you want to see Santa you need to be good Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website historyoftheworldpodcast.com you can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. The best ones will be read out. Be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us.